tuning in to the online broadcast network, AfterBuzz TV. Over 20 million weekly downloads in over 150 countries and your number one source for after-show entertainment. AfterBuzz TV, the destination for TV superfans. Producing aftershows for over 300 of your favorite TV shows. Interviewing celebrities and showrunners. And bringing you behind-the-scenes exclusives. All thanks to E! Entertainment's Maria Menounos, producer Kevin Undergaro, and internet leader Akamai. Now, let the buzz begin! <laughs> I love that every single time. I almost forgot how somber an opening our show has. Hello, fellow Fargo Files. Welcome to the ABTV Fargo After Show. Uh, you can follow the network on all social media platforms at AfterBuzz TV. I am Lex Michael. I'm all over the internet at the Lex Michael. With me is Dave Child. I'm all over the internet at MR Dave Child. So and DaveChild.com. Check it out. And so we are still playing catch-up a little bit, so mm-hmm. tonight we're talking about two episodes again. We're talking about Season 2, Episodes 3 and 4. That is The Myth of Sisyphus and Fear and Trembling. Yep. Wanted to, before we dive into uh, plot and character and all of that juicy stuff that we like to talk about, yeah. uh, wanted to touch on the titles of these episodes. Yeah, I, in my research I discovered that they've basically been philosophy books this entire time. Or this, these two episodes specifically, The Myth of Sisyphus is a Camus book, and uh, Fear and Trembling is a Kierkegaard. Now, The Myth of Sisyphus is about the Greek myth of the uh, Sisyphus rolling that boulder up and kind of having it fall down. But the Camus book is specifically about how we can't look at, at it as a uh, useless act, how the act of actually, the action of rolling the boulder is in itself something to be prideful for. So it's something like what your day-to-day job is, what you should be happy about, not the result of it. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, which is kind of interesting with the actual show, because the show kind of focuses on, we talked about it before, about how it's always about the next day, you just get back to the job, or it's just about doing your job every single day. That sort of aspect to it. I think that's kind of what the title is touching upon. And before that, the previous episode, uh, episode two, was called, what was it called? It was called um, Before the Law, which is based off of a Kafka story about someone trying to gain access to the law by going through a gate and the gate saying, you can't get to the law just quite yet. You can't get to the law quite yet. And that's about um, when they went to the Gerhards, when Lou went to the Gerhards and tried to get in and became this whole other, like... World, Sure. Which actually kind of happened in this episode. That's right. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I do think it's also worth noting that in the Greek myth, Sisyphus was punished and ended up having to push this boulder right. up, up a hill in this in this futile, laborious gesture because uh, of his self-aggrandizing craftiness and deceitfulness. And that's why the king punished him. And I think it's also very appropriate that in that myth, we see somebody who unwittingly set himself up for this punishment, for this fall. And yeah. I think that's something that could very directly apply to many of the characters in this season. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, and just the action of just trying to fight up against evil or something terrible happening against you and just kind of accepting that it's going to happen and getting back to it. I think it could be that, too. And Fear and Trembling is about uh, Abraham killing his son Isaac or being told by God to kill his son Isaac. And I think that touches in on themes itself with that episode. But maybe we should get to that when we like. We'll, we'll get to that when that. we get to yeah. that. So the, the jumping off point in episode three, which sparks most of the action in these two episodes, mm-hmm. is uh, there are finally fingerprints that are pulled from the gun at the Waffle House. Rise gun that was discarded that was found in, right. I believe, episode two by Betsy and was then turned over to Lou. Yeah. And now you have several entities uh, operating their own independent hunts for Rye. Mm-hmm. And the only people at this point who know conclusively that Rye is dead are the Blumquists who still have uh, the damage to their car and they've, they've chopped him up in the grinder and yeah. they're still trying to live their, their alibi. So uh, when we open uh, in episode three, I believe, we, uh, we see Dodd and his henchman Ohanzi, they're conducting their own search. Mike Milligan is conducting his own separate search yeah. for Rye. 
Uh, Dodd's daughter, Simone, tips off Ohanzi, and the two of them ambush Skip, the, the typewriter fellow. Yes. Poor, poor typewriting guy. At Rise, uh, yeah, they, they ambush him at Rise Apartment, oh, and they, they turn him over to Dodd. And Dodd, instead of saying, hey, daughter of mine, good job trying to help out your pop, find find your uncle, right? literally beats her for, yeah. for doing something without his say-so. Well, Dodd represents, has that kind of old-school mafia look of... The guys are the muscle. The girls are the ones that have to kind of sit back and just be girlish and mommy-ish and just kind of be the pure aspect of the family. Right. Which is why he didn't think his mom should be in charge, and it's why he doesn't think that his daughter should have any, like, form of family business. And it's also why he's trying to get his nephew into the family business. Yes. Despite uh, his brother's insistence that he doesn't. Right. Yeah. So when Skip is turned over to Dodd and Ohanzi, they force him into this open grave, and they right. they interrogate him as to Rai's whereabouts, and they discover pretty quickly he doesn't know anything. Yeah. And this poor guy, instead of instead saying... Instead of just letting him go... They bury him in this open grave in hot asphalt, which... Yeah. It was asphalt. I was trying to figure that out. It yeah. was asphalt. I believe it was asphalt. Yeah, I got the sense, too, because it was steam rising from it. And I kept thinking, like, if that turns into a road, they're going to have that problem of just having that one bump in the road and no one really knowing why. Yeah. And just being, it's a it's a dead typewriting dude underneath <laughs> dead there. Dead typewriting. Yeah, and this poor, poor Skip. And yeah. Skip, Skip was uh, first the first of what I assume will be several major casualties in the episodes to come. Poor Skip, rest in peace, yeah. we hardly knew ye. Skip uh, is also the character who is, he's kind of the William H. Macy character and the Martin Freeman character from the first uh, season of the, like, businessman who's way over his head. And I find it interesting that in that season and in that movie, they spend the entire time looking at his downfall. Sure. This guy, Skip just gets, he gets gone real quick. Yeah. Skip is like... <laughs> Yeah, it's he's not the focus of of this sort of Fargo like story. Well, right, and I see I see the parallel for sure. And maybe if we'd gotten to spend more time with Skip, there would be more parallels right. there. But it is it is like the uh, William H Macy character or the Martin Freeman character, but without the inclination to do really bad things. Yeah, well, he does. Except he does have that. He's the one that says he started this whole problem because he's the one that said go talk to the judge. And he was talking to someone who's just muscle, who's just mafia muscle. True. So he wasn't saying, like, oh, talk to the judge. He should have known that that wasn't going to be, he wasn't going to actually have a debate with the judge and actually be able to, like, work this out. He he didn't have, like, he wasn't an arbitrator he was talking to. He was talking to someone who's right. kind of a dim, you know, trigger hand. You and, know? and with that one well-reasoned point, all of my yes. sympathy for Skip is gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So what happens immediately after that is that Dodd tells Ohanzi to do whatever is necessary to find Rye beginning in Laverne. And Laverne is, of course, the stomping ground of the Solversons and the Blumquist. Mm-hmm. And there will be some intersect a little bit later. Hold on. Are you calling him Ohanzi? Is it Ohanzi? I believe it's Ohanzi. I think it's just Hansi. It could be Hansi. I think I, I like how you're making up a little like Scottish and Irish in there. Oh, I think it's just Hansi. Is it? Yeah. Where did I get this all from? I don't know, but I like it. I'm going to go. You can keep it. I'll keep calling him Hansi, but you can call him Ohansi. I'm going to call him Ohansi. Oh, Hansi. <laughs> oh, Hansi. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all right, fine. Okay. So, uh, I want to jump ahead, since we're going to keep talking about the Gearhearts, I want to jump ahead to the opening of episode four, where we see this flashback of Otto, uh, our, our friend uh, Michael Hogan, right. uh, bringing young Dodd to a meeting at a movie theater. And this is said in 1951, this flashback. Mm-hmm. And the movie theater... Uh, uh, and it's, I believe, very noteworthy, is showing... It, it's a fictional movie, but it's called Moonbase Freedom, right. and it stars Ronald Reagan. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's actually... I think they actually use footage from something like Planet X, Journey to Planet X, something like that, an actual movie. So, but the fictional Ronald Reagan movie is is what they're playing there. And it's they're tying more Ronald Reagan into this, and I find that interesting. I was reading something in my research that was kind of bringing up the theme of Ronald Reagan and what it might mean. And the opening to this whole, like, show was in the episode called Waiting for Dutch, which is kind of a playoff Waiting for Godot. Yes. And Dutch is a nickname of Reagan. And the idea, I think, is that the 70s is all about waiting for a hero to come and save them. They're waiting for someone to kind of come and 
and take the reins and really like save America and turn it great again. They call it in this episode, I think this episode, they call the 70s a hangover mm-hmm. because the 60s was all about partying and Mike. Mike Milligan, right? Yeah. Mike Milligan calls like the seventies a hangover, and I think everyone's waiting for someone to take them out of that hangover. And Reagan is that promise. Reagan is that hero that's supposed to come. So he's kind of this throughout this show. I think he's going to be this looming figure of this hero that could come in and save the day, but I think he never will. I'm, that, I'm getting ahead to kind of uh, predictions but I think there's an aspect of that's why we see like a fictional movie starring Ronald Reagan that's why the whole thing opens up with we're about to see Ronald Reagan oh we're waiting for him he'll come right and and they named it after waiting for Godot which is a you know a philosophical character that never shows up right basically God so and I think it's interesting that you you have this this idea and I like this idea of Reagan as this uh, benevolent figure that everybody's waiting on that never arrives because we're seeing it's so much more than I would have thought after the first episode or two. We're seeing a lot of UFO stuff, yeah, juxtaposed sometimes with Reagan. But I think it's interesting that you have on the one side, like you say, uh, Reagan, the benevolent figure that is looming out there somewhere that may or may not show up. Yeah, you also have this this idea of of extraterrestrials, this potentially malevolent force that is the equal... I guess I yeah. guess I'm suggesting that extraterrestrials and Ronald Reagan are <laughs> the, equal and opposing forces. The exact opposites. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. This, this malevolent force that may never actually fully appear. Well, and we never really know what they are, because even there's that truck stop guy that talks about like aliens, and even he doesn't say they're definitely the, the one that uh, Lou bumps into. Yeah, they, yeah, he says they could probe, or they could just be zookeepers, or they could be all all sorts of things. the The one interesting character, and I know, like this is kind of going back to episode uh, three before we get to four, I think. Is Hanzi. I wanted to talk a little bit more about Hanzi. Episode four, some of the Hanzi stuff is fascinating directly right. in relation to what we're talking about. But now remind me, in episode four, is is that when he's going through the Waffle House? Is that episode four or three? I believe that's in episode four. That's in episode four. When he's out in the parking lot. And we, we'll, we're going to jump around a little bit anyway. Right. But I believe it's in the fourth episode where he he's looking for clues and he sees the, the blood stains outside in the snow. He finds the broken glass. And yes. then there's that light there's in the, the sky. There's the light in the sky. And there's also – and then he sees the light in the sky and then he checks his watch, which I think is important. Because I... Is it almost alien time? Yeah, well, this is what I saw. Maybe it's also because I'm also kind of binge-watching X-Files right now. Me too. But something that Mulder always does, whenever there's like... The nine the alien thing, he always checks his watch to see yep. if there's been um, a lost time. Yep. So I don't know if he's checking his watch because like, oh, it's it's... It's 12 o'clock, it's alien time, that's just when they come. Or it's, oh, this is when that that instant thing that happens, that kind of looks like aliens happens. Or, if he's actually looking for lost time, and he's interesting too, because his flashback that begins episode 3 is perplexing. And I'm not quite sure where they were going with it. And it's it's one where he's, he's uh, episode 3 starts off where Hansi's in the woods holding a rabbit. And kind That's of caressing right. the rabbit. And then it flashes back to when he's um, a student and he's watching a magic act. And then he goes back and he kills the rabbit. Yeah. So, like, I'm I'm wondering if there's... I think it's touching upon also a theme of the idea that there could be magic out there and there could be something out there. Sure. But in the end, Hansi's character, at least, sees it as not being real or not, like... Not being or, possible. Or, or, or the, there's a look that's on his face when he sees the light. He, he yeah. checks his watch. If it's, I think it's totally worth considering that maybe he doesn't believe in it at all. But I'm also wondering, is it possible he believes it, he accepts it, and it just doesn't concern him all that much? Right. Yeah, it's interesting. And he also has a moment in this episode, jumping ahead a little bit, where he's uh, – it's revealed that he's someone who came back – who came back from uh, Vietnam himself. He's someone who brought the war back, which is probably why he's one of the hardest characters there. He's one of the characters that has, like, a real... who's able to do his job, focus. He's more of a soldier than, I think, anyone else in the Gerhardt sure. like, aspect of it. And he talked about how to... Uh, he talked about when he was uh, looking at the... when he went to go to the uh, car shop. 
He yeah. So that's yeah. and we can go directly to that because yeah, after he, after he finds the clues in the or potential clues and he sees the lights in the sky at the at the uh, parking lot at the Waffle House, mm-hmm. he spots the car. He spots Peggy's banged up car in the yeah. garage, and so he goes to investigate and he matches the uh, the glass that he finds in the parking lot right. to the broken headlight. Um, and then he he bumps into the mechanic. He bumps into the mechanic whose name is Sonny, I believe. Sonny. And uh, by the way, Sonny and Nick Offerman's character, who Carl comes Weathers, with, Carl was, they're all they are direct homages to Big Lebowski. By the way, I did find this out that Noah, the uh, the showrunner, talks about how they were they're John Goodman and Steve Buscemi. I can see it. Yeah, they're they're those two characters kind of set in the Fargoverse kind of version of that, which you could definitely see because they're like Nick Offerman's character is the veteran that comes back, but he's more of a goofy blowhard than he is like an actual like you know tough guy. Sure, you get the sense maybe he didn't actually go to war. I get I kind of get that vibe from him. But anyways, Hansi talks about. Also, I get I love how when he shows his gun. Okay, I'll, I'll get to that when Hansi. Hansi, uh, what's his name? Sonny? Sonny. Sonny. Yeah. He starts threatening Sonny and he talks about his experience in war, which is pretty serious. And it sounds like he came back really a changed dark soul from that and explains why he's a soldier. And then when Nick Offerman's character comes out, Carl, he threatens him to go and he shows his gun. And his gun is over here with the handle pointed. It's on his left side with the handle pointed out. Which means he's probably a right-handed guy, and he put it there so he can cross his body yeah. to get the gun and pull it out, which means he does not know how to hold a gun. You don't want to cross He does. Yeah, he does not. That takes up so much time. I, I've... I only fired a gun once when I was ten years old, and as, in a boy as a Boy Scout, and I know enough that that's not where you put a gun if you want to like quickly right. shoot someone. I've seen a bunch of westerns. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, we've all yeah. we've all known yeah. a Ronald Reagan in our times. <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah, we get that experience, and then uh, this is at this point, Hansi is like knows he's he's ahead of everyone as far as figuring out what actually happened to Rye. Yep. So. He goes back. Where are we now? In kind of the- we can we can follow Hanzi because there's really only yeah. I think one more significant bit with Hanzi in these two episodes, and it's he manages to find the Blumquist house, yeah. and he goes through the fireplace, and he finds among the the ashes and the charred remains of clothing, he finds Rise belt buckle. Right, he does. And at the during this, uh, right on his trail is Lou. Yes, and Should we'll, we move to Lou? We'll, we're going to circle back. I want to finish. Okay. I want to wrap things up with the Gerhards really quickly. We find out that Mike Milligan and Simone Gerhardt are sleeping together. Mm-hmm. They discuss. They discuss potentially having to kill Dodd. Yeah, which I mean, Dodd. Yeah. Dodd. Dodd has it coming. Yeah, Dodd is okay. So this is one thing I want to talk because you were talking about the flashback. Yes, where we see Dodd as a kid. Who, uh, while they're watching the movie, we didn't even touch about this. While they're watching the movie, uh, the main mafia guy of Fargo, because we're in Fargo, right? And gets gets knifed in the back of the head by a young Dodd. Well, and it's also worth mentioning this this unnamed man who Otto is meeting with talks about how he, if I'm not mistaken, he killed Otto's father right. in an attempt to take control of their territory. And now the plan is, you're here, we're going to kill you too. That's true. And we see Otto, like, really go full gangster and just kill everyone. And this is important, I think, because we get a sense of that Floyd is really not just a continuation of Otto. If anyone's a continuation of Otto, because we never really got to see Otto rule. Right. We just saw Otto, I almost said drool, which is terrible. I was, we just saw Otto have a stroke. No drooling involved. And, uh... We didn't. This is the first time we see him as a boss, and we we see that Dodd is actually a continuation of Otto. Yes. If they really wanted someone like Otto in in uh, in on the throne, then it would be Dodd. And Floyd is the almost exact opposite. Right. So we we know for sure when Floyd says to uh, um, to Joe when they're having their talk, um, "You'll be happy it's me," because if it was 
Otto sitting here, he would have shot you when you first came in. Yep. And we know that's true because of that flashback. Well, it's something else that she says, and I want to touch on this meeting with, okay. with Kansas City uh, in more detail, but something else, she alludes to having a firstborn son who went to war and was killed. Right. And I think that's interesting because, to me, it shades Dodd a little bit differently as well. Because mm-hmm. in the first two episodes, at least I was operating, perhaps foolishly, but I was operating in the absence of any other information, that Dodd is the firstborn. I think he actually says he's the oldest. He's, and the he's the oldest one. He's the oldest remaining, certainly. Yeah. And But it was interesting to me that he has he had... An older brother. Right. Who would have presumably been, quote-unquote, heir to that throne. Yeah, and that's perfect because we also see how Vietnam has shaped every single person, including the Gerhards, which seem to be a country on their own selves. They're like, they're a sovereign nation. They don't seem to be a part of America in a lot of ways, so... So the the Gerhards sit down with with Joe Bulo and the Kansas City Syndicate, and, and Floyd proposes... We we don't have to go to war. We can share territory. Mm-hmm. And she floats an offer. And they part after this initial meeting saying, you know, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll consider it. Uh, what ends up happening is uh, Kansas City sends Mike Milligan and the Kitchen Brothers to a doctor's office where, where Otto Gerhardt and some uh, Gerhardt crew members are – they're leaving. They're transporting Otto away from this doctor's office. And Milligan and the Kitchen Brothers – just open fire on everybody around Otto. They kill yeah. every Gerhardt crew member there, and they leave poor, stroked-out Otto alone in his wheelchair in the parking lot. Yeah. Which, by the way, great acting job. Oh, yeah. From uh, from Otto there. Michael Hogan. Yeah, Michael Hogan. He's like, he's he's a stroke victim, yet he's capturing so much with this, like, sneer that he just has this grimace and his eyes. Well, and, the, and you can tell mentally Otto's still there. He knows right. exactly what's happening, but his body is not responding to the mental signals anymore because of the stroke. He's, he's physically yeah. debilitated, but he knows exactly what's happening. There's a chance that he could get out of this and then become another force that has to like that takes back control, but I'm not too sure. Anyways. So after this happens, mm-hmm. the Gerhards meet with Kansas City again. And Joe Bulo says, you know what? We decided we're rejecting your offer. We're lowering our price right. and anything less than total surrender from you. And we're going to wipe every Gerhardt off the face of the earth. Yeah. And there's also one uh, important thing that happens during that meeting because one thing that happened before this was that Dodd, before they had this meeting, before they had any sort of talk about like, hey, we don't have to go to war. He did something a lot like his dad where he went and attacked Two members of the Kansas City group. Oh, yeah, two of Bulo's men at this coffee shop. And it seemed like they, right. they bumped into each other completely by happenstance. I don't think so. I think he went after them. Yeah? I think he went to that coffee shop with his nephew in order to, like, to beat them up. In order to kind of show a sign of muscle. Because that's all Dodd really knows and right. responds to. He's just, like, a force of violence. So I think he went there to kind of be like, oh, I, I'm going to show that I can take over the throne. Sure. By actually, like, you know, showing some muscle. That's why he beats him up and then casually orders a donut. Right, that moment that in, was in all the trailers for season two. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, it's a it's a pretty badass moment. It's a It's a good moment. And... But what happens there is Joe talks to uh, Floyd and says, listen, you've – he's retaliated. You – the only thing you could do if you don't want to go to war is punish your son. But he's your son. You're not going to do that. Right. Which is interesting because I think that's the whole point of naming this episode Fear and Trembling. Because Fear and Trembling is all about the Kierkegaard story uh, – well – Kierkegaard uh, talking about the anxiety Abraham must have had to kill his son Isaac. Sure. And instead of Floyd actually listening to the gods and what should be right and, you know, Kansas City and actually punishing her kid, because she could have just killed Dodd. She could have, like, if she wasn't a mom, if it, it, he's kind of right. And who knows, if it was Otto, maybe Otto would have. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe if Otto was around. But if even if it was like Hansi that did this or something, she probably would have killed the guy. Right. And then send him to Kansas City. And that there's that sweet moment right after um, that they're given that choice of either, you know, accept our offer or go to war where you see Dodd for the first time be like a gentle flower and just It's that moment in the back of the car. Back of the car. Where he puts his mother's hand on his face and yeah. for, for a minute Floyd pulls it away. Yeah, he she just won't she just won't touch 
her son and that she won't she's trying to separate herself as a mom there and try to be the boss of this group but she just can't do it she has to like ex- she just has to be a mom and accept him and because of that they go to war yeah i mean it's gonna cause a lot more bloodshed mm-hmm. than just like killing off dodd and sending because in the in the mafia world that would probably be the easiest most right thing to do is just kill off dodd it would be the quickest and the simplest right so, anyways, that's that's kind of I think where fear and trembling come from. That's the what's behind it, and and that is more or less for these two episodes where we leave the Gerhards at the end of episode yeah. four. Bear and Dodd go to ask Floyd, "What is the plan going to be?" And she she tells them, "We're going to war." Yeah, we know that war is uh, on the horizon. So, all right, I want to jump over to Lou Salverson. Good. So, uh, Lou, Betsy, Hank, this family unit—they're uh, all grouped together. Uh, Hank. In episode three, I believe, encounters mm-hmm. Betsy at the salon. And Betsy, within earshot of Peggy, floats this theory about how Rye could have been the victim of a hit and run. Right. And I think it's wonderful. Again, we saw it, we saw it in the second episode where she is the one that finds the gun, but hearing Betsy piece this together on her own and pitch it to, to her, her uh, sheriff father. Yeah. I think it's wonderful that Betsy is every bit the, the police officer, the, every bit the detective that the men in her life are. Yeah. If not more so, because nobody put that together. And in fact, Peggy freaks out when she hears this, because obviously that's, that's what happened. And yeah. she, she discredits, she says, no, that's crazy. Why, why wouldn't the driver say something? Why wouldn't the driver stop? So on and so forth. And yeah, Peggy, basically says, why would, why would a, uh, someone just drive back? to their house and just make dinner. Right. Which is exactly what happened. And Hank goes, well, you know what? I'm inclined to agree with Betsy here. Or not Betsy, I'm sorry, Peggy. I'm inclined to agree with Peggy here. And for the time being, that gets dropped. Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, Lou... I do want to say one thing about that scene. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there is... uh, This is actually the first time I was a little worried with... um, uh, I don't know. It, there's, you know, when we first start watching Fargo, everyone's worried that it's just going to be fan fiction or just something that's like, I really love the show and I want it to be a little bit uh, like the movie. This is actually the first time we hear something that was, I think, in the initial movie where Hank says it so f- just casually, but it's a famous line that Margot says, which is like, why would they even do that? Just for a little bit of money? Yeah. Which is from Margot's like, famous like monologue that she has very moving moment and hank kind of says it just like you know off the cuff sure it just kind of happens and i got actually a little worried at that moment because i'm like uh oh are they just gonna like put i don't know lines from fargo in every now and then just to be like eh, get it eh, get it but i think the you know that that only happened once and they right. saved it and yeah and i think it's also important i, I you were talking about this that that betsy you know, says this because it's it's important that Fargo always has that strong female character. Yes. And even if in the 70s that was like more behind, kind of behind the guy, but it's still like she's still there and influencing her daughter, obviously. Yes. Which is great. Okay. So yeah, we well, and we on. do have, we do have, I mean, I would argue uh, even if her her command is is temporary, I would argue Floyd is probably the most, one, or one of the most powerful characters on the show. She's just not yeah. a force for good That's in the true. world. That's true. Floyd is probably the most interesting character in the show. Yeah. Just because, yeah, she's, she's the matriarch is just Which, by the way, now that, now that they're going to war, I'm very, very scared for Floyd. But right. we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay. So Lou visits the Gerhard farm and has a tense standoff with the entire family, essentially. Uh, after that, he goes to the typewriter uh, store. I, I want to also talk about on the way there, he meets Ben Schmidt. Yes. Which is, he meets Ben Schmidt in the office of the judge. Yes. That's when he meets, like, the typewriter guy who's being all sees, squirrely. Yeah, before he gets uh, buried in asphalt, yeah. he sees Skip behaving very strangely at the judge's office. But this isn't actually the first time we've met Ben Schmidt, because Ben Schmidt was in season one of Fargo. Ben Schmidt was the boss of Colin Hanks, who was just kind of barking orders at him. And at one point, Lou says... You're blowing my mind Yeah, right now. well, it's, it's true. And at one point, Lou... Says like, oh, I've met Ben Schmidt. I don't really like him, it, or something along that lines. He doesn't. He, you get the sense they have a past history together, yeah, and that he doesn't like Ben Schmidt. And this is the young Ben Schmidt. I did not. I did not remember that at all from season one. Yeah, it's there. And what happens also that's important is when they go to the Gerhards, 
it's law flips. It becomes a different country. Ben Schmidt doesn't even like warn Lou about this. They just go in and the Gerhards come out and say, like, all right, give us your guns, policemen. And the policemen just give them up, except for Lou. Lou's and the only one. I gotta tip my hat to Patrick Wilson and his performance oh, in, so good. in these episodes, the last ones too, these episodes especially because he is so pure and he is so yeah. good. But in that scene especially, he doesn't so much as blink. Yeah, I love the line that he says, I'm sorry if I should be terrified of you right now. And something, something. But like that, just that moment of like, I'm sorry if I should be terrified of you right now shows that he's, He's in a whole nother world. He's not in the Gerhardt like country. He doesn't know the rules here. They're totally separate, and I, I just love that moment. This is just looking directly into Dodd's eyes and giving him not the yeah. slightest and bit Dodd, of. Dodd admits, like, "Hey, why would we kill a judge? They're all we're paying them all just in front of police officers." Yep. He, it just doesn't matter. It's just so separate. They're not part of the. The normal law and government. Yep, so. and and Lou knows who the Gerhards are. He knows these people are bad news, and he knows just how bad news they are. Right, and he still won't even give him an inch. Yeah, he just stares. He just won't. Will not. He won't. He won't do anything that's going to get him or other police officers killed in that moment. But no, but he did say like, "Hey, if they keep their their arms drawn here, I'm going to have to start shooting." And he doesn't want to do it. It's a politeness, right? But it's still he's still offering it. Which is important because of what happens at the typewriting. Which, which, right. Almost immediately he finds himself yeah. in another standoff when he goes to the typewriter store. And at this point, Skip is gone. Skip's yeah. certainly not there. Mike Milligan and the Kitchen Brothers, however, are there. They're also conducting their own search, looking for their own clues. And mm-hmm. I love, uh, I don't know if you noticed, the kid, one of the two Kitchen Brothers comes out of the bathroom and he's holding a UFO magazine. Oh, really? I did yes. not notice that. Do you remember last week when we were talking, I said, I would love if the reveal at the end is that the Kitchen Brothers and Mike Milligan are from outer space. Right. I'm I'm clinging hard to the idea that the Kitchen Brothers are I aliens. I don't think they're aliens. I don't think they are, but I want them to be. Also, I do want to say, because uh, one of the best lines from the episode is uh, when he says, oh, it's Mike Milligan and the Kitchen Brothers. He says, you make us sound like a prog rock band. A prog rock band, yep. Someone make that shirt. Someone make that prog rock album cover of Mike Milligan and the Kitchen Brothers. Or just that album cover. I just want, I just need that shirt where it's just the the three of them just posing kind of like... In that prog rock kind of style, that eighties like. Well, it would on. be. It would be. It would be I exactly. Guess it would be what, 70s, yeah. Would be exactly what you're picturing. But then the two Kitchen Brothers, each with their shotguns, flanking Mike Milligan, who'll have a pistol in each hand, and they'll be posing the way you're describing. Right. I think actually Mike Milligan wouldn't. He would just have. Oh, he would just have his hands out. Or he'll do like the I'm the not I am a not a crook. Yes, crook moment. That would be perfect. So uh, then, after the, shortly after that, Lou has the encounter uh, with the with the trucker that you mentioned, who brings yeah, up wait. the visitors from outer space again. Before we move on too quickly from that, because uh, Mike Milligan also says something that I think is a big theme of the show that we've talked about in the last episode: that idea that it's politeness versus evil, or yes. it's just the idea of uh, being proper versus evil. And because you get, he says like, "No, you guys aren't. You guys aren't nice." You guys are just proper. You guys are You're polite. polite about it. Yeah. Like, uh, like I should be thanking you for like being so me, being so unfriendly. Right. You know, you're very just polite and proper. And I just, I, I think that's a moment to just mention because I think it's a big part of why Fargo is so interesting and why all these characters are so interesting and to to see all this evil kind of infect this world because. Everyone's so proper and polite, and it's that it's that it's that Minnesota nice, and then right under that veneer of decency and politeness yeah. is all this this darkness. darkness. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Perfect. So uh, we find out uh, Betsy and Lou are talking to a doctor. We find out that Betsy's right. condition is worsening to the worst doctor ever. He does not have very to, good bedside manner at he all. He has really bad bedside manner. He's just. The entire time it's like, well, I guess they would I guess you would like say they're just not good. Yeah. It's not good. Oh, and I should tell you about what a placebo is so flippantly. And yeah, that's so yeah, awful. he brings up he brings up this drug trial as as one possible course of action, but he does his pitch is not his pitch is right. not spectacular, but at this point what what options do they have? Yeah, they have no other choice but to take this fifty fifty. Like we could be giving you uh, an actual experimental drug that might even not do anything in itself, right? And or, we, of course, of course, we can't tell you whether you have the placebo with right. a real thing because that would that would defeat the 
purpose of the study. Yeah. Yeah. And you see that nice tension in the family, uh, afterwards, after when they're back at the house, there's that moment where he's like, where she says, I'm going to go take my sugar pill. And Lou's like, no, I think it's the, I think it's the one. I think you're taking the drug. And she says, do you think that because you hope it or do you actually think that? Right. And it's that nice moment. She's, she's, um, she's the logic. She's yep. like a big, logical part of the family and i think that's it's a good balance and it's also why she was able to see through a lot of the things a lot of the police work that the actual police yeah aren't doing. absolutely yeah so um hank and lou meet with sunny and carl weathers and yeah. the two of them uh sunny and carl relate this incident yeah. with hanzi yeah and they they point out the damage to the car and lou's looking at the car and then he has this Epiphany. Yeah, he flashes back to when he was in the butcher shop and acting and like talking to Ed, right? It's Ed? Yep. Yeah, talking to Ed and realizing, seeing all the tells that Ed had, seeing all the like moments of squirreliness mm-hmm. and strangeness that Ed actually had at that moment, not answering the phone, just like, you know, not wanting to him to get inside the shop itself. Yeah. And he was able to really quickly piece it together. He just needed that one one little piece to make the yeah. light flip on. And so he goes right to the Blumquist. Yeah. And we'll we'll circle back around to that. I do want to talk a little bit about the the Blumquist up until that conversation that's in their good. home. Yeah, that's a good way of doing it. So uh obviously, you know, Peggy overheard uh Betsy pitch this theory about the hit and run to Hank was able to dispel it in the room, say, okay, no, that, that couldn't have happened, it doesn't make any sense, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then goes, oh crap, and goes to Ed and has Ed crash her car again to cover up the damage. Yeah, but, you know, in typical Fargo fashion, I think the the first crash doesn't quite work. Right. The whole car flips around and hits him in the back bumper, and so they have to do it again. Which is a big tell for Lou later on when he's like, wait, this doesn't make sense. This is, they also backed up here and they hit the front. Something's, something's squirrely. I also love Jesse Plemons. Uh, I think I got the, uh, the whiplash. The, the whiplash. Yeah. Um, and you, you find out too, not that we weren't already pretty keyed into this, but you see things are not copacetic in the Blumquist marriage by no, any stretch. As no. far as Ed is concerned, they're still trying to conceive a baby. And meanwhile, Peggy's still taking birth control. Just, for example, yeah. Um, well, he's he's trying to be the fifties, sixties husband. That's right. what he wants. Um, in in an interview I saw with the showrunner, he talks about the good thing about setting in the nineteen in seventy five. It also means the whole every, each character they're set in the seventies, but they're also set in the sixties. Yep, they're also set in the fifties, depending on where their mindset is. And with Ed, he's very much set in like the sixties, fifties sort of. Proper, I'm going to have that shop. I'm going to, like, have a business. We're going to have a family. And, uh, you know, his wife is not. She's she's trying to find her place in the world, but not knowing quite what it is. And she's also very, very full of denial and very full of, like, not empathetic at all. Right. Like, she's she's someone that – they're both actually, I think, lacking some empathy. Because Ed is trying to just go forward and not think that his his view of the world is the same view as hers. While, like, she's trying to become a better person and takes money from the account to create this, like... That was the next thing that retreat. I wanted to touch on. Yeah. Is that Ed goes to make the down payment on the butcher shop that is to be his... That's that's what he wants his yeah. life to be is to take over this business. He goes uh he hands over the check, comes to find out the check bounced. And uh Bud, who's currently running the shop, he says, "Well, you know, your check bounced and I'm I'm really looking at this other offer, but yeah. I'll give you until Friday to make this right and see if you can come up with the money." Which by the way, we know that that means that between now and Friday, Ed's going to do something real stupid. Oh, that's true. That's true. In like the Fargo world, there's that no tends to happen. Th- th- when you get that that time frame set and the desperation sets in you know, there's no way ed's not going to do something exceedingly dumb right maybe i don't know about that because we also have the heat kind of breathing down his his neck and he's and i do want to talk about that moment for a second before we move on to what happens in their house mm-hmm. which is where we're going but like because that's the first time 
that check bouncing is the first time their actual trajectories kind of butt heads. And it's not it's not just oh we don't have the money we wrote a bad check it's we had the money. Yeah. But Peggy went and spent it on this this life retreat. spring retreat. Yeah. Just to like just to better herself and not better the family but at the same time Ed is someone who's trying to and we can't just put it on her because at the same time Ed's trying to buy the store and make his family of what he thinks his family should be and not really asking her what what she wants either. Right. So but both of them are just like blindly going towards this this moment where they just don't connect because right. the check bounces. And they, you know, Ed confronts Peggy about this and yeah. Peggy goes to her friend uh, her friend Constance who's been pushing this retreat yeah. so far so so aggressively and says I need the money back. And of course uh, Constance says, well, you can't get the money back. So Easily we, we, talks her out of it, too. We're also, we're agreed that this is a scam, right? Well, I don't know if it's a scam. I don't know if it's a scam or if it's just, like... I'm Because Constance is obviously interested in Peggy. So, sexually. So, like, I, I'm wondering if this retreat is really... Just an excuse to get Peggy yeah. off somewhere. Yeah. yeah, and also it could be a, a retreat full of people... Much like Constance, who yeah. are interested in other ladies. Sure. So we have, it could just be like, I think Constance is working on it, her own self-interest. It's not so much a scam, but it's There's like, definitely you know, more to her intentions than you need to do this for you yeah. and be the best you can be. Also, the 70s was full of that, like, everyone going on retreats, everyone trying to better themselves in that sort of sense. So it's like, it's probably as much of a scam as that is in general. Sure. But I, I think it's there. And she's easily talked out of it by Constance. She right. doesn't... Well, I don't get a sense that she's actually going to get try and get that money back no. after that. So. No, I don't think there's... that. that money's not coming back no. so which is why before friday ed's gonna have to do something I and mean, that's why i believe especially in in the fargo verse that ed ed does something it Maybe. probably doesn't end particularly well for for eddie yeah unless ed is stopped even before friday you know well, unless something happens so so, so to that point that. to that point we touched on hansi poking around the blumquist house oh, finding Hansi, oh, finding the uh finding the belt buckle uh, Lou arrives at the Blumquist house after Hansi's out of there. They're not home yet. He waits for him. Right. They show up. We don't. Do we actually see Hansi leave? I don't remember. Off the I don't top think of my head we, if we actually see him do. I maybe we. I'm going to rewatch it to double check this. But I feel like I feel like we don't see him leave. So there is the added tension of not knowing if Hansi is still in the house during that whole during that whole discussion during that whole moment when Lou comes in. And like, and faces them. Right. Because they get a knock on the door, Lou shows up, and it's the first time where law enforcement is actually revealing that they know what's happening. Right. And there's a fantastic speech. And I know it's, I do have to say, usually in a show like this, like in True Detective or something, there's, there's sometimes a sense of whenever someone goes back to, keeps returning to the theme of, uh, a war that kind of destroyed everyone, a war that brought in evil, a war that, like, you know, changed people. Usually it's kind of tiring when they go back to it. But this speech is an example of, like, them... They've already had about two or three speeches about about the war. But this is still a great speech. And it's still Lou's speech about, like, I'm seeing... I saw denial. I saw what denial in the face of a dying man looks like. And that's what you two look like. You look like dying men that are just full of denial. Yeah. And that's so powerful. Because that's... I I haven't heard writing like that in a very long time. Because it wasn't even like, you guys look like you you are dying. Or it's, it's two separate things are going on there. Of like, denial and dying... And he's trying to explain to them that what they're doing is far more dangerous than spending their life in prison. And that's the thing. At this point, he's put it together. He knows that they hit Rye. They, one, two, both of them hit Rye with the car. That's where Rye went. He He doesn't have enough to actually arrest them. No, but he knows. He makes it clear. And they know that he knows now because of how direct Mm -hmm. he is about it. And they stick to their story. Yeah, and Ed almost, like, comes out and says it. There's there's a moment where I think he's he's about to admit it, and then it's Peggy that says like no 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 no, and kind of well, and also midway through this conversation, back. Ed notices that the fireplace screen has been moved. Right, 
and it wigs him out as it should because that means like he know he knows Lou didn't do that. Lou was outside till they got home. Yeah. That tells him in that moment, and it's communicated entirely non-verbally because he can't show his hand. Someone was here. Right. Someone else knows. Yeah. And so you know, Lou pushes as much as he can without. What's he going to do? He can only be as direct as he can be, and they stick to their story. And when he pushes just a little bit more, Peggy says, essentially, you're, you're making me very uncomfortable. No offense, but but you should leave. And uh, uh, Lou puts it as bluntly as he can without saying, if you do this, you're going to die. He basically right. tells them the Gerhards hurt people for money, yeah, and they're coming. They may already be here. And as he leaves, he tells them to lock their doors. Yeah. And then he, he goes. Because what else can he do? Right. Right. It's, uh... Yeah, it's uh, the approaching storm that's about to happen. Because this episode was all about... Like, I read a New York Times review on this episode, and they called it Winter is Coming. Mm. Even though, like, it's always winter in Fargo. But it's it, it feels like there's something down the line that's... The storm is about to hit. We got war on the horizon... The now, now the the uh, Gerhards know the Blomquists are involved and probably have killed. They basically know that he they killed Rye because of that belt buckle. That that's once once Hansi goes back to Dodd and says, "Hey, look what I found." Yeah, they know that's one way or another. That's where the trail ends. Right. So what? I guess predictions now, right? Yeah. Why not? I think we covered everything major. We've got a few yeah. minutes left. Yeah. Let's jump into predictions really quickly. And now, oh. I love the light show. And look, they're like wintry blue colors. Ooh, this is the first time I've experienced this. Yeah. This is oh, great. this is exciting. Oh, this is like the aliens from Fargo are visiting. Oh, okay. So <laughs> predictions. So, um, what do you think? What do you think Ed's going to do if if you think he's going to do something stupid? I'm not entirely sure. I think, especially especially now that we know, okay, the Gerhards and Kansas City are going to war. We know that the law enforcement's going to get involved. We know that now the right. Blumquist are tied directly. The law's looking at them. We know the Gerhards are going to be looking at them. I, I, I honestly, I have no specific right. earthly idea. Well, the only thing that he could maybe do is rob the um, the beauty place. But like, I feel like the, he won't do it. I don't know. It's that kind of. I see where the logic is that he's about to do something stupid in that sense. But I just don't know. I don't know what it actually could be, right? Or what, or where he could actually like move forward to. I think okay. So there's going to be an all-out war between them, and we know that. More than likely, pretty soon, characters are going to start being offed violently. Yeah. I think you were saying how you were afraid of Floyd. I am very afraid for Floyd. I think Floyd's going to survive. Yeah. I don't think the rest of her family is. And that's why... that Because think of the worst possible outcome for Floyd. Is, is and, losing her sons right. and her grandchildren. And, yeah. Yeah. And just, like, losing everyone around. I think there's also... I think the also the beginning of the series where it's the uh, the, the massacre at Sioux Falls, where yes. it's where it's like the U.S. coming in and sweeping out um, native native people and the the, the kind of um, the tribe that's there. I think the Gerhards are that tribe in a way. So, and I think Kansas City is kind of an aspect of that people coming kind of coming out and sweeping out. That is a really interesting parallel. Yeah, so I don't think this the, this by the way internet is why you get Mr. Dave Child on your podcast. Yeah. Cuz he can say things like that and mm-hmm. make your mind go ooh. Ooh. So I think there is I think that's an aspect of of I think that's the Gerhards are not going to come out of this looking pretty. I think that's almost a definite. I think no matter whether or not there are any Gerhards actually left standing, I don't think there is a Gerhard criminal syndicate. Right operating in Fargo anymore. I also want to touch upon the fact that I, we did I did hear in my research that Bruce Campbell definitely is going to be coming through Fargo as President Reagan. This is my prediction. I don't think he's going to do very much. I think it's just going to be quick in, quick out. I, I think there's going to be a big build up at some point about like Reagan's coming. Reagan's coming. Reagan, Reagan, Reagan's coming. And then it's just going to be like him waving in the past and it's not going to affect the story at all. We think he's going to save the story and it's going to tie everything together. I don't think he's going to do anything. I think that's another 
reason why the episode begins with everyone waiting for Reagan and he just doesn't and show he, up. And he doesn't show up and doesn't help them. Because he's that hero that just doesn't actually help. And while I agree that actually would make the most sense based on the thematic framing that you've suggested uh, tonight... I am still holding out hope. The possibility, maybe they'll do an alter, like an Inglorious Bastards style alternate version of history, and we'll get Space Reagan. Space Reagan. I really want Space Reagan. Space Reagan. Uh, Bruce Campbell's Reagan fighting aliens. The, the Bruce Campbell and the Reagan uh, space armada fighting Mike Milligan and the Kitchen Brothers in the stars, and that's the finale. Right. And nobody, nobody down on Earth knows or believes it. They see the lights in the sky, and they have to embrace the mystery. Yeah, if he does, if he does uh, shoot the Kitchen Brothers in the face, I hope in a Bruce Campbell fashion he says, "I'm taking everything, including the kitchen sink." <laughs> <laughs> That's my hope. I, I more or less, more or less on the same page. I just hope it happens on a spaceship. Yeah, I mean, what is with the spaceships? I don't think we're going to find out. I think it's going to be something, because they keep bringing it back. I would say it's like maybe not going to be anything if we see it just once. There's going to be some parallel, even if it's just the paranoia of the of the time, where everyone doesn't trust the government anymore, and the and the uh, the aliens represent that distrust. But so something is going to happen. Something just is going to just. We might not get a good explanation, but there's going to be a little button with an alien. And and it could also just be to touch on you know more seriously, just to touch on some of the thematic stuff that you you've been talking about. It could just represent that thing that is always there, that is bigger than us, that is ominous as hell, that we right. can't control, and we don't know if or when it's coming for us, but it's out there yeah space reagan space reagan space reagan and i think that's gonna do it for us uh on this uh, fargo after show i think every week i'm gonna try and end on space reagan right uh so yeah that's gonna do uh mr dave child where can people find you on the internet at mr dave child and davechild.com yes and you can find me all over the internetty webby things my handle everywhere is at the lex michael thank you guys for joining us tune in next week we're going to be talking about two more episodes episodes five and six i'm very excited to see characters we like get killed off in violent fashions yeah thank you guys see you next week bye from executive producers maria menounos kevin undergaro phil svitek and the entire AfterBuzz tv staff we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz tv network to watch or listen to other after shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz you later! The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. <laughs> 